I got I got involved with being all high about that baby. Now, but it's really important to have a baby pass, but I'll tell you why. There are sites. This is not what I plan to talk about, but I will get to what I plan to talk about. There are sites that are important to see. Uh, let's even step back from that one 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 step to say actually uh, sometimes visual sites. And in fact, in there's a French translation of a Dharma book where it talks about seeing clearly, which is how we most often uh, translate vipassana, which is the Pali word for this practice that we do. And we translate it as seeing clearly. And uh, the French word, is, the French phrase is vision profonde, seeing deeply, deep vision, profound vision. And I think it means having the eyes to not only see what's happening, clear seeing, I wipe my glasses, I see clearly, but do I see profoundly? Do I really get it? Do we realize, uh, for instance, we look, at, we look at Lila Grace, a beautiful baby, and we realize how amazing life is. Yeah, three months ago, four months ago, her parents could not have answered the question about what was your original face before you were born. They had to wait to see her original face. It's a Zen question. Zen teachers ask people, what was your original face before you were born? What was your original face before you were conceived? What is anyone's original face? Who knows the answer to that koan? But you look at a, a, a person come into a life, and the equanimity reflection, all individuals are heir to their own karma, has a really lovely sense to it. Lila Grace looks the way she does because she had this grandmother and this grandmother and assorted other, two other grandmothers. And No, she has two grandmothers. <laughs> she, has, she has four great-grandmothers. It depends on the family. She has four great-grandmothers and eight great-great-grandmothers. And so she has Lila and Grace. She has two grandfathers. She has two parents. She has all kinds of other relatives whose genetic pool have congregated in her. I have a picture of my grandson Colin's great, great, great grandfather. So look at that picture and say, if everything got divided equally, one thirty-second of this person's genes are in him. But they don't get distributed equally. Who knows? By an amazing piece of cosmic chemistry, we come out just the way we are, heir to our own karma. Nobody looks like us. And, you know, when we look at babies and we realize that their circumstance is just is quite not something that they chose. It's just the, the um, fruition, not the accident, but the fruition of the whole of the world, really, that that person's parents met each other and liked each other and that their parents met each other and liked each other. You realize how precious every single person is and every single thing is because there's never been or will be another thing just like that. This immediate moment in cosmic time constellates in this being in that way. And we realize it's preciousness. We really realize it when you look at a new baby. You go, ah, there, are, there are exalting type views. And I, uh, what I was thinking of starting to tell you is that it's so wonderful from time to time that a baby comes by here because uh, much of the discussion here has to do with understanding profoundly the ubiquitous nature of suffering in the world, that because our experience is also ephemeral, everything doesn't last. We're always losing something personally in health and vigor or opportunities or interpersonally in terms of relationships or lives that are dear to us. There's a very important line of the Buddha where he says, everything that is dear to us causes pain. And it's a it's kind of a troubling line. You think, whoa, kind of a person was he. But I think it was a wise person because dear means it's really important to me since everything is ephemeral. As soon as things become important to us, they're one more thing that will cause us pain when we're separated from us. We have two choices. We can say nothing will be dear to me, so I'm vaccinating myself against pain. 
and live a life disconnected, or we can say everything is dear to me. My heart will be always open and vulnerable, and I will behave with utmost care because that's the only possible response. You realize this is brilliant life. That's the other insight. It's full. It's permeated with suffering because of the nature of loss. It can't be another way because things disappear. And it's supported by the, 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 the parallel vision of its extraordinary. You know, it's amazing. In so, the, the, the gloriousness of a, of a uh, lawfully consistent cosmos. And the sun comes up in a predictable place every morning. The earth doesn't fall out of its orbit. The Krebs cycle works. We continue to have kidney functioning. Babies look like their grandparents. There's amazingness about life. The way in which perhaps the amazingest thing about that, since so far that happens to all beings, all living beings, including ants and centipedes and elephants, the amazing thing about human beings is they have that possibility of changing their mind or of altering their behavior or of feeling like doing one thing and doing something else instead because it appeals to them more and it seems more correct. We have the, the it's a tremendous thing evolutionarily. It says, you know, a little lower than the angels. I like to think that's what that means, you know, that we have the ability to feel like doing something, think it over, and say, you know, that might not be so kind to other people, so I won't do it. I've been really loving the uh, loving-kindness teachings that we've been doing all week, and um, people are discovering sitting up there at that retreat and practicing what a pleasure it is to rest in their own goodness. People are naturally good. Um, when we discover it in ourselves that when our minds quieten down and we're not overburdened, or overworked, a little bit refreshed, people spend the first day or two really sleeping a lot. They come to interviews and they say, I can't wake up. So every time I sit down, I'm asleep. And it takes two days for the pace of the, what we think of as normal life for people to realize, you know, I don't live well in my life. You know, The first kind of realization that people often have in mindfulness retreats and in metta retreats as well is I, I really am not in touch with what I need. You know, I, I don't sleep enough. I don't eat at the right time. I, uh, I'm tired is what most people say. They fall in here kind of like in, I have this feeling often of um, the monastery of St. Bernard on the top of the Alps where we have to get through all kinds of snow and really uh, pilgrims out finally finding the monastery and falling in the door and say, phew, <laughs> they're there. And I have much the same feeling up here that people fall in the door, <laughs> close it behind them and say, okay, I'm not going home. <laughs> So for some period of time, for these folks, for nine days, their life is really protected and supported. It's a simple life up there, you know. They eat two and a half times a day, three times, but the dinner meal is very modest. And we get up at 5.15, the bell rings in the morning, and at 9.40, the formal day is done. And all day long, people don't do anything except repeat a hope for their own personal release from suffering, peace in their own heart, peace in other people's hearts, and ultimately, peace in the whole world for all beings. So that's what people are doing all day. They walk and they sit and they walk and they sit, unlike mindfulness retreats where the attention is on what is my experience at this moment, how do I feel, what do I think, uh, how does my body feel. We... Everybody notices that because you can't not notice that. 
But uh, it's the background to the dedicated discipline of moment-to-moment wishing for one's own heart's release and everybody else's. And everybody discovers pretty soon that they're touched by how much they want it for themselves or for everybody else. They're also touched by the fact that as they relax, the pain that they've felt around relationships that are conflictual in the world falls away. Not that they didn't feel the pain, not that the relationship wasn't difficult, but they begin to have a wider context, really a context that the the texture of which is acceptance, where they come to realize quite spontaneously, I'm doing the best that I can all the time. Everybody else is doing the best that they can all the time. All beings share the wish for happiness. Everybody wants to be happy. Nobody gets up in the morning and says, mm, how can I mess up my day? And, you know, <laughs> we don't do it. How can I plan to suffer in my life? Nobody purposely does that. Everybody really wants to be happy, and we do some very maladaptive things sometimes on behalf of our own happiness. But if we thought, usually if we thought we plan better, and sometimes we think and we make wrong decisions, but still it's all the more painful if we think and make wrong decisions and say, I tried and I didn't do it. I wanted, I chose this. What also falls away a lot our thoughts about if only. There's a lot of our pain in our mind and heart is taken up with if only. If only I had chosen path A and not path B, if I'd uh, become a violinist instead of a dentist, or if I'd uh, kept that relationship instead of giving it up, or if I'd given up that relationship instead of keeping it. Uh, or if I had chosen the other relationship and not this one, I would have had a completely different life, people say. And the truth is we probably would have had a completely different life, but what we don't know about it is how it would have been. It would have been completely different, we know that. But that's really all. Not necessarily more full of happiness, and who knows what might have happened in any particular life. Or we, we add on, we extrapolate from a little kernel of thought to a whole life, it would have been vastly better than this one that I have. Maybe, maybe not. Or vastly more pleasurable or gratifying. And even if it had been, we didn't do it. So that (laughs) thinking about it now is... um, It reminds me, the Buddha had certain metaphor that he used... um, about the double stabbing. So if somebody stabs you with a knife, you remove it right away. You don't stab yourself again then with that same knife. He said, that's exactly what we mostly do to ourselves. Someone stabs us, we have a thought, uh, I shouldn't have done that. Look at how much pain came into my life as a result of doing that. So you feel pain. I had all that pain in my life. So that's stab number one. Stab number two is, I can't believe I did that. My whole life I've been stabbing myself with my stupidity. And then adding it on. So you have double stabbing, the stabbing of the pain of that event and the stabbing of telling yourself a bad story about yourself, which is no good for anybody to tell yourself a bad story. It's very demoralizing. The Buddha said, particularly around metta practice, he said there is no single individual in the whole world Search the whole world over. You will not find a single person more worthy of your well-wishing than yourself. Isn't that lovely? Why would you find a single person more worthy? Who is more dear to you than yourself? Really, in fact, I mean, we feel we would... Maybe with a newborn, there's a sense that we are equal because that child's life is ours at that point. But mostly... We care a great deal about other people. But that caring really manifests itself, I think, in its full flower when it comes to our ability to care for ourselves. 
Sometimes it's, it's very touching to me how many people come to retreat and say, it's very hard for me to make wishes of well-being for myself. I can do it for other people. I can be about my benefactor, my grandmother, my partner, my anything. But for myself, I'm not worthy. I don't know where we got that. It's unfortunate, I think. It's unfortunate because, in fact, the most power comes in our own wishing to ourselves because we want it so badly. And we feel it. Even when I feel that I want something for somebody else and I wish or pray for them, may, they, may their health improve, may their happiness improve. And I really want to feel that prayer in my heart. I can't feel it in their body. I can only feel it in mine. This is the only vehicle through which I can make those intentions. And I think I'm going to feel that with my whole heart. The intention for someone else's happiness has to come through my own heart and the feeling of happiness in it. So that particular, the, uh, the, the vision of a, the sight of a baby is one of those sights. Um, maybe you should go along with... Uh, the sight of the sunrise coming up in the right place or the sun coming around and turning around. There's something very comforting about the um, reestablishing of life, the recreation of life in its cycles, cycles of babies growing up to be old. That's quite remarkably consoling in its ongoingness. The sight that was so consoling to the Buddha was the sight of a monk, visual sight of a monk. In the legend about the Buddha's um, initial determination to leave his life of comfort and relative unawakenedness and uh, take on the life of a spiritual seeker was uh, the event of seeing a monk as a vision, probably, after seeing visions of old age, sickness, and death. I think it corresponds in each of us to realizing at some point, in some way, with some vision, with some actually visual vision or inner awareness or some growing awareness of the precarious nature of life, the ephemeral nature of life, you know, how soon it's over and how constantly in um, change it is, not staying ever the same, so you can't count on it. How much out of control, in terms of out of our personal control it is, and how we are inevitably moving on towards that... Um, towards further and further into a life of saying goodbyes <coughs> to ourselves and to everyone. So enormously changed by the sight of a monk who will get old just with the rest of us and lives in a world just with the rest of us, but by the very image, through the very image of the monk into which the Buddha inferred, here is a mind who sees the world the same as I do, and is all right with it. Not necessarily likes it better, but knows this is the way the world is. I can remember going to my, um, my teacher, Joseph Goldstein, at a time that I was doing some really intensive practice. And I was so overwhelmed with the ephemeral nature, the changing nature of experience. It just got me in some extraordinary, broadsided me. And uh, it made me quite weepy. You know, I, it was... Um, I think it was the fall of the year. And the leaves were falling and turning to the winter. And I was talking about uh, everything's dying. And then I realized that one day at lunchtime, 
someone brought some fresh flowers. I guess they'd gotten them in, in a florist. And there was a flower on each table. It was beautiful, and it had just come into flower, maybe rose, and can't remember what kind of a flower it was. And I looked at it, and it was so beautiful. And I thought, three days, this will be all brown around the edges. <laughs> and I was really seeing things in their decaying form. And I went and I said, you know, I can't see anything without seeing its decaying form. I said, it's, it's just terribly sad. And he said, you know, it's not sad. It's just what it is. And sad is extra. Sad is the story that we tell on it. It's just what it is. You're just seeing that piece of it. It's just what it is. It's like when you see a baby and it's all fresh. And you know that its bloom is way ahead of its blooming cycle is just now starting and it's going to be blooming for quite a long time. <coughs> so the way in the way distant future isn't anywhere in view and it's so exciting. It's just what it is. Ajahn Sumedho, who taught here in the spring, a, a small retreat for the teaching staff here. Just all of us sitting together. Ajahn Sumedho, a monk who, uh, in our tradition, who's the head of a very big monastery in England. It was a great pleasure to have him come here and teach us and be with us for uh, a week with a number of his monastics from his community. And it was a teaching line of his. He said it quite a lot. He'd say, that's just what it is. It's just what it is. There's just such a, there's something about if I could in any way in my voice transmit to you what I could feel in the transmission from him of the kind of heart of acceptance. It's just what it is. You know? Things get old. They don't last forever. And things come new. They don't last forever. That's the way things are, the old and new. And peace is possible. That's really the that's really the news. It's possible to say, this is extraordinary life. It's an amazing thing. And a human that life particularly precious because it has that possibility of choosing. And the choosing, when you think about it, this seems to me to be the biggest amazing thing of all, more amazing probably than um, <coughs> that the sun comes up in the right place and um, that the seasons change and that babies, all kinds of babies of all kinds of species are always so cute. And their parents know how to take care of them. That's always so amazing. All kinds of species, the parents know how to take care of them. The quail out here are amazing. And see, I saw a family of quail cross the road the other day, and uh, they have the two parents at the beginning and end of a long line of quail. So here comes either the mom or the dad running across the road, and ten little quail right after them. They were teeny. They couldn't have been more than a couple of days hatched. And they run on these little legs, and they run across the road. And then there was a little bit of a curb that they had to go over. So here the two parents zipped over the curb, and these baby quail couldn't get up over the curb. And they, they tried. You know, they were valiant. They were trying to get up over. And a couple of them scrambled over, and a couple of them couldn't get over, and they turned around, and they ran back on the side of the road. And not five seconds later, one of their parents came out back and squawking, came running across the road to go back and collect them. They know how to do them. They count quail, or they, <laughs> <laughs> or they know where they are. They feel it somehow in their mechanism. And it's so uh, exciting to see that, you know? What is that? I don't know what that is about that, but it is when you see a thing like that. Doesn't that like really thrill you to see they know how to do that? Even more exciting, though, is the fact that human beings can feel like doing something and temper that feeling and not do it or do something else on behalf of the other person. This capacity for loving and for choosing 
to not be led by self-motivated bias where I feel like is not enough reason is an amazing capacity unique to human beings I think I feel like but I won't do it I'll do this because it's better for everybody that's an amazing human talent that talent of loving affectional bonds And I think, I believe that that's the context, I feel, I trust that that's the context of the human heart, really. When we settle down, that's who we are. I'll read you the Metta Sutta. I love this. I've been reading it all week. At um, Every time I give a Dharma talk, I start by reading the sutta again, the whole of it. It's just one page. But I do it for a couple of reasons. First of all, I've been doing an explication of the sutta line by line. So I want to have the text in front of me. But also if I read it first, I get in such a good mood. It's a a, a great place to teach from. This is what should be done. By those who are skilled in goodness and who know the path of peace, let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing of which the wise would later reprove, wishing in gladness and in safety. May all beings be at ease, whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born. May all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, just so, with a boundless heart, should one cherish all living beings radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upward to the skies, downward to the depth, outward and unbounded, Freed from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. That's wonderful, isn't it? That is wonderful. Every one of those lines, every time I read it, yields up something else. It's like um, each one of them is a whole separate treasure chest of meaning. I'll tell you a little bit about what I've been thinking about it. Hmm. I think it has three parts. Um, I think it. I think the beginning part of it is. Uh, do you know what the? the well, I, I, we have to stop for a minute. Do you remember some weeks ago I brought a cartoon here about with a spiritual seeker going up a mountaintop. Um. I've been thinking about since then calling the New Yorker where I got the cartoon and saying, is anybody doing an anthology of uh, the cartoons that have appeared in the last 25 years of seekers sitting in the front of teachers who are sitting in the front of uh, caves on mountaintops. Um, Actually, I'm organizing that a little bit because... Uh, for years, I've been a little bit um, 
embarrassed by the cartoons, are sensitive about them, you know. Um, my best friends have sat in caves, and um, uh, certainly all of us are spiritual seekers, and uh, I thought it was mocking the seeker going to the top of the mountaintop, and definitely mocking the guru sitting cross-legged in the door of the cave, because they're usually saying things like, um, always the caption is the answer to the question, which isn't written there, but you can, you can infer that the question is, what is the meaning of life? Because the answer is always something like, life is a river, or uh, maybe life is a river, or I think life might be a river, or different kinds of questions that seem, at least at first blush, to be mocking of gurus. That's the level of your understanding. The one in the New Yorker that I've been carrying around for a while, the one with the guru in the door of the cave saying, if I knew the meaning of life, would I be sitting here in a cave in my underpants? (laughs) And everybody always laughs about that one. But I really felt bad about that. It took me a long time to read it because it seemed like the supreme mock of... First of all, it presumes so much. I'm not sure that if I knew the meaning of life, I wouldn't be sitting in a cave in my underpants. That's number one. And the other thing, I mean, but I, I realized when I, I, just the other day was looking at it again, I realized it's not mocking the guru. And it's not mocking the spiritual aspirant either. It's mocking the question. I think that's what it is. The presumed question, what is the meaning of life, is nonsense. What if at this moment would boom out from the sky, life is a river, so what? What would we do? Or, well, life isn't a river. Or, it, it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what's the meaning of it. What matters is what are we going to do? What are we going to do right now? What will we do with the fact that the water is increasingly not clean all over the world and the air is increasingly not clean? There's a big hole in the ozone layer and the globe is warming up. There's too much flooding and peculiar climates happening. And 50% of the world goes to sleep hungry every night. And 80% of the world does not have adequate housing. And a tremendous number of people cannot read. There's so much information and most people are not privy to it. What are we going to do about that? How should we live? All these six billion people on this rock, getting more and more crowded, and not not living well, not taking care of each other, fighting wars all over this planet. Can you imagine we're sitting here in such a place of incredible peacefulness? It was lovely. Um, and on this very rock in the middle of the cosmos, people are shooting each other with guns, purposely trying to kill each other. We are, we're teaching about catch the mosquito in your room this way and carry him outside, and people are shooting each other with guns on this very planet and devising better ways and bigger guns to shoot more people more at a time. So the question really for me, the, the reason that those cartoons, I think, are continue to be funny is they mock the kinds of questions that we ask. The question is off. question is, what are we going to do? And the first line of this sutta is, this is what should be done. This is what should be done by those who are skilled in goodness and who know the path of peace. And then it goes on. For the next uh, seven or eight lines, to say this is what should be done. I just really learned that this well, this well, I've been thinking about the last few months, and this week when I've been teaching it so much, I really got it. I used to think that the, it was sort of um, glib, this particular sermon. Like the Buddha said, love everybody without limit, omitting none. 
And it looks like that's the instruction. Like it doesn't tell you how. Like it says, this is what should be done. Wish everybody well. Ready, set, go. Do it. And we all know from our own experience that that's not that easy. You know, that we have these strange holdings in the mind where people, I I, want to say this in a kind way, people will say, you know, I don't have any trouble wishing unbounded love to all beings in all directions. But my (laughs) brother-in-law, that's a problem. You know, it's a strange thing, you know, that it's a very strange thing that we, you know, six billion people, fine. Two people, not good. You know that? And, and first of all, it's such a bizarreness because it's as if those two people, wherever they are, are losing sleep about you're not wishing, when in fact you are losing peace about you're not wishing. You are the only one that's suffering from that not well wishing. So it's number one, bizarre. But it's so painful. But we all know that that's true. We all know that we don't love all beings equally, some better than others. In fact, we don't even expect ourselves to. We say things like near and dear. Um, someone pointed out, Sally did in her talk last night, she said uh, she was uh, recently in uh, Australia teaching and she said she was dismayed, as she is where, this is not to speak about Australia as being uniquely where this happens, but some um, accident had happened, I, I, I think, um, somewhere in the South Pacific, maybe around Bali. But it, there was a, a headline in the newspaper that said, uh, Ferry Sinks, wherever it was, off the Balinese coast, uh, hundreds feared dead two Australians missing. Now, that we personalize, but, and it happens here. They, you know, the headline in the IJ about an uh, airplane crash someplace else would be three Californians on board. I don't think that that's, I don't think that that's unnatural. I, th- I, I, I don't even think that it's uh, unwise. I think that by saying that, it helps us, in fact, to think, oh, I could know that person. And when we think that, oh, I could know that person, it reminds us that somebody knows every one of those people. Well, that otherwise, it seems like a remote thing. You know, sometimes we read the most terrible things in the newspaper. And maybe because they are the most terrible, they're so hard to hold in the heart. We imagine that Somehow it doesn't have to do with people or it doesn't have to do with us. Um, treatment of women in Afghanistan. Well, maybe we put that out of the mind because we don't know anybody in Afghanistan or we're not actually so sure where Afghanistan is relative to. But if there's all of a sudden we know people. Californians are in Afghanistan or... Somebody in our family happened to be visiting there. There's a connection. Then we realize those people are people. There's a way in which maybe the personalizing makes it more apparent to us. But we do keep some people dearer than other people. I think it's actually through the closeness of our closest associations where we develop most strongly the, the experience of what it feels like to love and be loved that we develop our capacity for compassion. We realize that everybody has these same sorts of affective bonds. My father-in-law came to America from Russia in uh, 1921 uh, when he was uh, 16 years old. And uh, he told about uh, during uh, World War I when um, enemy troops, German troops, had come through the Ukraine where he lived and um, had, uh, I, I, I guess, took over cities, conquered them, and the cities surrendered, and uh, they, uh, they didn't kill all the people in the cities. I suppose they, soldiers fought with soldiers, but the civilians, they allowed to live there, and they bivouacked soldiers in uh, 
the homes of the people in those cities that they came through and conquered because that's how they had to do it. And the people in the town were expected to take in soldiers and house them and feed them. And so he said three or four German soldiers were sleeping in his mother's house. He was a young boy uh, on the floor and and what are they poor people so on the floor or on cots or on whatever and uh, and uh, that his mother had been obliged to somehow get together enough food to feed them as well and i said uh, how was your mother towards them you know, enemy soldiers there and uh, he said my mother was very kind to them she said they are some mother's children here they are some mother's children Everybody is some mother's child somewhere. I like to think that's what made my father-in-law a nice person. Maybe it was her saying that. Maybe it was the fact that she was the kind of woman who said that that made him a nice person. He was a kind person. But this is the answer to what should be done. The first part of it is the answer to what should be done. The second part of it, because the first part of it gives instructions on how to make the mind quiet and content. The, 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 listen to these lines. This is what should be done by those who are skilled in goodness and who know the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech. Able and upright, I'd, I'd like to take as determined. don't really see of it as necessarily referring to a state of um, like physically prepared as, as much as mentally prepared, upright in determination, staunch, determined to do it. requires tremendous determination to retrain the heart away from all of its habits of nonsense. Yeah. Really. Somebody said as a question the other morning, they said, you know, um, X many years ago, I don't remember how many years ago, she said, my brother almost died, during which time, he didn't, she said, but during that time that he was compromised, sick, in jeopardy, she said, everybody's mind was so focused, it wasn't relaxed and focused, but it was focused, and everybody really got it about what's important in life. Really, when you comes down to life and death is what's important, and the nonsense that we are this, this family feuds and who doesn't talk to who or who has a recrimination about what fell away. She said, and then after a while, she said, after my brother was okay, I had such an appreciation of of that life was the only thing that mattered and loving people was the only thing that mattered. And she said, and by and by, you start to lose it. You know, the mind falls back into nonsense. So she said, what can you do to keep yourself that the mind doesn't fall back into nonsense? And we don't want to do it by frightening ourselves every day. You know, say, um, when we say goodbye to people that we love, we say, I'll see you later. It's a guess, I'll see you later. But we have to do that. Otherwise, it would be a torment to go through any amount of, of time. We have to assume and not even assume, but trust that things will be what they'll be and appreciate them as long as they're the way that we want them to be. Not, not mess up a moment with not lovingness. I think that's what upright means, determined to not mess up a single moment. X many moments, we don't know how many moments we're going to have. Um, With more and more of my friends, we are hanging up the phone uh, or uh, signing the email, I love you. Because you don't know what's going to be your last communication. And people talk about what was the last thing that so-and-so said before they died. It would be a good communication to be the last one. Not to be macabre, you know. Every time we go out, we're not expecting not to come home. But sometime we'll go out and not come home in one way or another. So the first part of this, I want to see if we can 
get through all the three parts and I'll come back and do some of it. It's really the instructions for mind training and heart training. Able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech means honest and um, uh, honest and thoughtful in how we put out the honesty. doesn't mean letting people have it. I'll tell you how I see it. Saying what is uh, true and helpful to people. That's what it means. I think it's the definition of right speech. Humble and not conceited. I think what that means is recognizing that we're not in charge is humble. It doesn't mean, um, I don't think it means humiliated. I mean, we're doing the best we can. I think it means recognizing that things, it's just what it is, really. And for me to rail against life or what happens, it shouldn't have happened, it should be otherwise, it's just what it is. It's what it is. That's what really the humble place is. It's not defeated. It's like, it's, it's wise. Humble is wise. Really, God knows what's going on. It's way so complex. Karma is so beyond anybody's possible figuring out. It's one of the things that the Buddha called an imponderable. You can't even ponder it, let alone figure it out. Unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways. I don't think that means not having duties. I think it means having duties, but not being burdened by them, doing them in a cheerful way, Uh, figuring out how those duties should make you happy. I think you need to change that. Ah, <laughs> um, oh, okay. I think you need to, that the, we need to figure out how to do our, the things that we do in a way that we feel joyous about doing. This is an opportunity to serve, not, um, not burdened. Ah. You know what I've been doing more and more? I've been trying to practice uh, the Thich Nhat Hanh telephone reflection. That, uh, you know, the phone rings and you, you, know, you have a thousand things you're going to do, but you can answer the phone. Instead of falling on the phone, take the minute before, ring, ring, may this phone telephone call proceed in a way that's happy for me and the other person and helpful. Then you answer the phone. It's one extra ring, but instead of, ah, it comes out much better. It comes out much better. It's much better. And I do it. So I've been doing it more and more. I actually like it. I've been thinking about Thich Nhat Hanh, so I started to do that. Peaceful and calm, wise and skillful. You think about that. Just as instructions, like be peaceful. All right. Is that you, we, we, I think we often think about all of those peaceful and calm and wise and skillful as you can't just decide. You know, if it'll arise in me, by grace, I'll be peaceful. But I think actually those are all cultivatable. We can say, I am determined today when my peace feels ruffled to unruffle myself or to try to. Determined to try to. Calm, we could always say, I'm going to take a little time out now and calm. I'm going to try. Is this the wise thing to do? Am I skilled enough? Do I have to work at this a little more? What, what would be the skillful thing to do now? I actually like that word very much. think to myself a lot, not what is what the, what's the right thing to do. It's, it makes such a burden of right or wrong. What would be skillful here? What would work? for the benefit of all beings. Not proud and demanding in nature. It's such a wise point of view, not proud and demanding in nature. And a pride, first of all, is so extra about, I mean, it's just like it's just what it is. We're just like what we are. You know, that humility is, you know, that I'm uh, false humility I'm worthless or I'm fantastic. They're, they're both so extra and problematic. We're just what we are. Everybody is trying the best they can. Confusing it is just extra. What was the other part of that? Not demanding in nature. It just makes a problem to be demanding. It's so wise not to be demanding. You know, why should I have... 
you know, I'd like to have something, but if I can, I can. If I'm not, it just makes an unruffled mind. I love those because then the last uh, phrase of instruction, not let them not do the slightest thing of which the wise would later reprove. Such a wise thing to say, live your life in such a way that you won't have remorse or contrition afterwards. Think it over. You are the wise who will later reprove and you'll give yourself a bad time about it because we really don't feel good when we don't behave in a moral way. If we sit quietly and the mind clears, then we really spontaneously get a moral inventory. It's just the way it is. All the better if we figure in advance to not have so much that we'll have to make amends about. We'll feel better. Because then the next sentence is, wishing in gladness and in safety. All of those are the buildup to what will make you feel glad and safe. Those are the whole instructions. They are, in fact, the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, all folded up in there, I guarantee it. I've been seeing it all week in different ways. That if you follow a path of peacefulness and righteousness and determination, right speech, all of them, what comes out is that you find yourself in gladness and in safety, feeling in feeling glad and safe. The safe has to do with your nervous system calms down when we're safe. And then the people who have offended us, my brother-in-law, my this and that, or my business associate, whoever offended us, don't seem so frightening when we seem when we feel safe. And when we're glad and our mood is up, we have such a good feeling on other people, not because it just moved into us at that point, but because that is the inclination of the human heart when it isn't caught in its own fatigue and its own knots. So what we've done by doing that whole path of practice is restore us to the place where we can say, you know what, I'm in gladness and I'm in safety. So there is no problem about my wishing well towards all beings, which is the heart of the sutta. May all beings be at ease, whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none. The great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen. I think that's very interesting, by the way, the seen and the unseen. I've been thinking about what does that mean. Those that are near and those that are far away, those that are born and those that are to be born. I think that's a lovely idea. That means that how we behave now makes the world in a certain way that prepares it for those people who haven't even come in on the radar screen yet in any way that nobody's expecting yet, but might be. May all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another. That's, again, why would you tell a not truth to somebody? If you loved them, it would be a problem for them. It wouldn't make a problem for someone. Or despise anyone. If you really could see clearly and you were in gladness and safety, everybody's just the way they are because of circumstances. If people are in rueful circumstances, you'll feel kindly towards them. We'll take care of them. Certainly not wish harm. Just as a mother would protect her child, her only child, just so towards, should we towards all beings boundlessly open our heart in all directions. Then it goes on to say, that, so that's the wish. It's a big wish in the middle. Wishing this wish. That's the wish. And then the end, it says, freed from hatred and ill will. This is what will happen. If you really make yourself so clear-minded that you can wish that wish wholeheartedly, then what it does at the same time, it starts from the place of freed from hatred and ill will, and it keeps you in the place of freed from hatred and ill will. Which means it keeps you seeing clearly, because hatred and ill will is what confuses the mind. Whether standing or walking seated or lying down. That means all the time, because there's no other time except standing seated, walking, or lying down. That means forever you will see clearly. 
means forever you will be freed of bitterness and rancor. Be able to say, like, that expression of Ajahn Sumedha's, this is it. It's just this. It's just this. That's what it is. So it is. It's just this. It's the heart that accepts that's not in contest with anything. Free from drowsiness means awake. That's what we're trying to do, stay awake to the truth of things. One should sustain this recollection. That means we're awake and equanimous. Just hold it there. doesn't mean that it's blah. It means it's full of everything and it's fine. It's just this. This is said to be the sublime abiding. Do you know these particular, the metta, is one of what I call the Brahma-viharas, metta, karuna, mudita, upeka, loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. And they call the Brahma-viharas, which literally means a vihara is a, uh, a dwelling place. So um, you might say, uh, when I was in Bodh Gaya, I stayed in the Burmese vihara. It means the Burmese tourist house. That's what it means. A vihara is a dwelling place. And Brahma is godly. So Brahma vihara is a divine dwelling place. They often call the divine abodes. Um, My friend Sharon Salzberg likes to call them best home. Yeah. I, I like to think of them as a nice place to live, the best kind of a place to live. Not if you could live with your mind and your heart in that place all the time. You would be able to see with the widest understanding by not holding to fixed views. It means we're free. We didn't have to hold to fixed views. Anything that I thought about what was scary, what I liked, what I didn't like, what I... It falls away. You see, there's nothing to be frightened of. The pure-hearted one having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Seeing clearly... Being freed from all sense desires, I take to mean not requiring that things be a certain way. Free of craving. Not free of thinking or free of interest in this or that. Free of craving. You don't suffer anymore. When you're able to say, this is the way it is, this is it. Doesn't have to do with liking or not liking, wanting, not wanting. This is it. Not craving, we're free. You don't suffer. This is a fabulous sutta. My friend Sharon said uh, a couple of years ago, she said, you know, maybe this is going to be the prayer that's going to save the whole world. It's not parochial. It doesn't require any kind of a dogma. What if the whole world sat down and just worked on perfecting their own goodness thinking about the people that they know and love the most, which is a really easy thing to do. Think about the people that you know and love the most. You feel like get your engine going on people you know and love the most and somebody's happiness and the good thing, the the really uh, things in the world that pick up your heart, like everybody, we brought the baby in here, everybody said, ooh, everybody felt good. You see a ballet dancer on TV do some amazing thing, and it doesn't matter that it's not us. It's like, oh, look what human beings can do. And people can map genetic maps, and people can figure out all kinds of amazing things. People are amazing. Life is amazing. If we can look at that, pick up our heart, gladden our spirit, 
feel it's wonderful to be in a life. For however long, it's a great gift. Wishing in gladness and in safety. May all beings be at ease. Thank you very much for listening so that I'm very carried away.